Well, good uh, afternoon, I guess, or is it still morning? I'm not sure. Um, my name is Calvin. I am the, the junior high director here, uh, and I am overjoyed that I get to share God's word with you today. Uh, finish off our series on fighting for the family. We've been talking about what it means to fight for our family uh, in the regards to faith and to see God in our midst. If you could open up your Bibles to Deuteronomy 6.1. I like to call it Deuteronomy. It makes it cooler. It's more where that came from. Don't worry. Um, and it's, if you don't have a Bible, it's in your notes outline. It'll be on the screen. Again, we are talking about fighting for our family. Today, we're going to talk about passing on a living faith. And if I can be honest, I've never really been much for fighting. I haven't been a fighter. Um, I had a friend in high school who was a wrestler. He was twice my size, twice as strong as me, which meant I was his guinea pig for anything that he wanted to do. So most people, when it comes to perceived danger, they have a fight or flight reaction. They either stand their ground and get ready to fight or they flee. I developed somewhat similar reactions, but I had two moves. It was either fetal position or foot to the crotch. It was either take him out or protect myself. And yes, that may have been the first time you've heard the word crotch in church. I don't know if it's okay, but it's already happened. So we'll just go on with it. But anyway, one night in college, I I was up at 2 a.m. working really hard because that's what you do at 2 a.m. in college. Um, And I suddenly had this longing to punch a man in the face. Like to see my fist connect with another man's face and then to be punched in the face as well. I said, this will be my moment of manhood. So I did what any man would do and I go down to the hall and I find a friend. I say, hey, you want to punch each other in the face? He's like, yes, I do. Um, Make a quick caveat. Parents, if you have a son, you can be the most wonderful parents in the world. Your son at some point will still be an idiot. Um... (laughs) Men, we have a propensity for stupidity. My parents raised me wonderfully. I still think it's a good idea to put wheels on a couch and go down a hill. I don't even care if there's a brake system or not. I just want to do it. So I thought that if I got punched in the face, I'd like instantly get sideburns and mustache and chest hair. Instead, I just had a headache for a while. So all you boys in high school, don't do it. It's stupid. I know right now you're thinking like, I'm going to do that when I get home. Don't. You're going to be an idiot. Don't do it. It's not worth it. But anyway, I say this stupid story basically to illustrate that I felt like I had to go find a fight, that the fight wasn't coming my way, so I had to go look for a fight. But when it comes to fighting for our family, we don't get to choose if we want to fight or not. The fight is already at our doorstep. And I believe we're in the midst of a huge fight on behalf of our own family and this very church body. I'm a seminary student, and I get to read a lot of good books. And one book I read was called Almost Christian, and it messed with my head because they did this massive study between 2003 and 2005 on the religious life of youth. And what they found was that most American youth are okay with faith. They think it's an okay thing, but it doesn't define them. It's not a central part of their life. And so students tend to be more articulate about their favorite movies and their music than they are about their faith. And what else this study revealed was that as they looked at their faith, they came to understand maybe five basic tenets of what students believed of what would compromise their or comprise their faith. They referred to it as moralistic therapeutic deism. So if you're ever at a party and want to sound smart, just say, yes, I was reading about moralistic therapeutic deism. 
You will be the life of the party, I promise. Uh, Moralistic therapeutic deism, this is what students believe. The first point is that there is a God exists who orders the world. A God exists who orders the world too. That God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to one another. Three, that central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Four, God is only involved in my life when I, have, when I need God to resolve a problem. And five, good people go to heaven when they die. And this is why the book was called Almost Christian, because the basic beliefs of most youth is just that. It's almost Christian. That there are bits and pieces of truth, but for the most part, it would not define historic and robust Christianity. But here's the convicting part, and this is the killer, is that students have not just created these beliefs on their own, that they have not just looked at the world and said, these are the things I want to believe, but that this is the faith that we have passed down to them, that we are guilty of moralistic therapeutic deism, and we have passed that on to the next generation. It's convicting. It calls for repentance. But also, you've heard maybe a study that about 75% of students, when they graduate high school, will walk away from the church altogether for about 10 years, maybe eventually return when they have kids. And while that statistic is staggering as well, what this study found was that 8% of students had a living and active faith. So even if students are walking away from the faith, even if they may still attend church, they're not getting a robust living faith. That they're sitting in the church pews, but we have failed to pass on the Christian gospel to the next generation. So the question that we wrestle with is how do we pass on the faith to the next generation? And this question is not a new question. It's an ancient question. Deuteronomy, the book that we're going to be looking at today, our main text, is, is a sermon given by Moses as the Israelites were on the cusp of entering into the promised land. And as they were going to be entering into a land filled with other nations and other communities and other beliefs, their concern was how do we remain the distinct people of God in the midst of other cultures that are not. I imagine some of you even maybe have a struggle with this, is that some of you come from different backgrounds, different nationalities, different cultures, and you want to see the distinct aspects of your culture passed on to the next generation. But as the next generation is raised in a culture that is not your own, your original, they adopt new customs. And so the tension is how do we retain our distinct identity in the midst of other cultures. And we as Christians wrestle with that as well. How do we remain Christian? How do we pass on the Christian message to the next generation in the midst of other cultures, of people who are not the people of God, in a world that does not follow God? Thus, that brings us to Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 9. You can see it on your notes, or you'll see it behind me as well. 6, 1. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes and the ordinances that the Lord your God charged me to teach you to observe in the land that you are about to cross into and occupy, so that you and your children and your children's children may fear the Lord your God all the days of your life and keep all his decrees and his commandments that I am commanding you, so that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and observe them diligently so that it may go well with you and so that you may multiply greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Keep these words that I am commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children and talk about them when you are at home and when you are away, when you lie down and when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Fix them as an emblem on your forehead and write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In the context, just before Moses has talked about how the previous generation had seen the cloud descend upon Mount Sinai, that they had heard the voice of God reverberate through the wilderness. They had smelled the smoke and felt the thunder. They had felt the the mud stick to the bottom of their shoes as they walked across the floor of the Red Sea. The waters parted on both sides. The previous generation had memories attached to the stories of God, and yet the next generation would hear the stories and have no memories attached to them. So how do we retain our distinct and unique cultural identity is the question they're asking. Well, verses 1 through 3, they form a connection between obeying God and fearing God. Verse 2, it says, So that your children may fear the Lord and keep his decrees and commandments. So there's a connection between following the commandments of God and fearing God. And fearing God is not being afraid of him, but living in a reverent awe of worship of him. So if you fear God, you will obey his commandments. And if you obey his commandments, you are living with the fear of God. I like to think if you know there's a God who has commanded something, you probably want to do what he says. So within this verse, there's three commands to, to obey, to observe, to keep, to hear. And then attached to three of these commands is a promise, a so that. And you can see it on the screen behind me. Observe so that you and your children and your children's children may fear the Lord your God all the days of your life and keep his decrees so that your days may be long. And hear, Israel, and observe so that it may go well with you. You may multiply in a land flowing with milk and honey. So what's interesting about that is attached to each of these commands to obey God is a promise that if they obey God, if they fear him, that they won't have to worry about passing on the faith to the next generation because they will multiply, because they will retain their distinct and unique faith and cultural identity, that they will continue to be the people of Israel, the people of God. But what is it that's handed down? What is it that, what does this look like? If, if we're to obey God and to, to follow him, what does this look like? This is, I think, what 4 and 9, verses 4 through 9 kind of map out. Verse 4, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. See, Israel is going to be entering into a land filled with many other nations. And these many other nations believed in many gods. They had a God for everything. The sun God, the moon God, the star God, the the crops God, the rain God. If you want a God, they got it. It's like gods are us. If you don't have a God, just make one up. It'll work. And yet Israel believed in one God, not many gods, but one God, the God of Israel and Isaac and Jacob, who had revealed himself to them. And they were to worship this one God. This is a scandal in that day and age. And it's not that their worship of God was just to be sacrifices that they do on the weekends, but it was to be an all-consuming love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. 
we read this, we can maybe think that it's talking about three separate faculties of the body. So if we were to diagram it, it might look like this, that you have your heart, your soul, and your might, and those comprise one individual. So you're to love God with all your various faculties. But what is going on in the text, if we look at the Hebrew, it's actually the outgoing dimensions of one's life. So the love for God started in the heart, which was the deepest part of the self, the center of emotions and the center of the will. And then the soul comprised the entirety of the person. And then the might could actually also be translated as possessions in the Hebrew. And so the love for God starts in the heart and begins to ripple into every other part of life. Love for God was never meant to be a private or personal thing. It was meant to permeate every aspect. I think this is in verse 6 why he says, Keep these words that I am commanding you today in your heart, because the love for God starts in the heart and flows into the rest of our life. And as it flows into our life, it flows into our conversation. Verse 7, recite them to your children and talk about them when you are at home and when you are away, when you lie down and when you rise. This basically means talk about it all the time. You are either at home or you're not at home. You are either standing up or you're lying down. And as my wife pointed out, what if you're sitting? Well, you're, it's in the middle. Okay, we'll throw it in there. It's, it's everything. We talk about God all the time. See, I, what, what we talk about most is usually what communicates what is of utmost importance. So if we're always talking about money, don't be surprised if the next generation finds money to be of utmost value. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, what are we talking about? What are our conversations about? Are we talking about money, sports, the home, grades, movie, entertainment? What, what are we talking about? Or has the love for God which began in our heart permeated into every aspect of our life so that it's just natural to talk about Jesus? And I, I don't want to say we don't have to force conversations, be like, hey, how you doing? Great, I love Jesus. Let's talk about it. Like, that's awkward. That's weird. Don't do that. You will not have any friends. But the love for God was just to fill our life and become a natural outflow. And we talk about what we love. And if we love God that has started in the heart, it's going to naturally pour into our conversation. Finally, verses 8 and 9, and these are my favorite. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Fix them as an emblem on your forehead. And write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Again, these are outgoing dimensions of one's life. So for a community and a people who worked with their hands, to have something on your hand would be inseparable from your heart because you will always see your hands. And then as you mark yourself on your forehead, you are a person who when others see you, they see that you are marked distinctively, that you have the word of God upon your forehead. And so you are immersing yourself in the word of God through your hands and it's upon your forehead so that others see it upon you. And as you write it on your doorposts and on your gates, as you go into the world, you are reminded that you are representative of God, a member of his people, and that calls you to live and act in a certain way. So again, the love for God was to permeate every aspect of our lives, to fill it all. So how was Israel to retain their unique identity? By following the commands of God, by fearing him by loving God in such a way that it permeated every aspect of life. We return to the study I, talk, I mentioned earlier. 8% of students had a living faith, an active faith, a vibrant faith. 
And in this study, they, they realized there were four components or things that aided in a student having a living faith. So on your notes outline, this is where we'll begin to fill in the notes. First, those with a living faith had a creed or a personal understanding of God's story. A creed is basically just a set of beliefs, either written down or, or just assumed. So within the, the church, we have historic creeds like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. You can look those up online. Uh, but we all believe something, and what we believe is basically a creed. And moralistic therapeutic deism, in a sense, is a creed. It's a guiding philosophy or theology of life. But it's kind of abstract, so let me help flesh it out for you. I think moralistic therapeutic deism is actually seen very well in the fish 95.9. Now, let me be clear about something. I was born and raised on Christian music. Five Iron Frenzy, OC Supertones, Amy Grant, Michael W. Smith, DC Talk. I mean, these were my artists. I didn't know who Red Hot Chili Peppers were. I was a weird kid. I mean, I was like, are they Five Iron Frenzy? I don't care. That's my band. So I love Christian music. But the way that the fish advertises itself is that they are a safe alternative, safe for the whole family. So rather than being a radio station that glorifies God with their music, they advertise themselves as not having any swear words. Since when was Christianity ever safe? And Christianity is centered on and around death. That Jesus takes the death that we deserve upon himself. And then when we turn to him in faith and repentance, he says, okay, now we're going to put you to death. We're going to put to death your sin, your selfishness, your pride, your love of yourself. And he says, I don't want just a piece of you. I want all of you. I want you to follow me wholeheartedly. And following Jesus may even lead to our own physical death. Since when is that safe? But again, Moral, uh, on the fish, they talk about God, but so does moralistic therapeutic deism. See, we can't just talk about God. We have to talk about the way that God has revealed himself. That for the Israelites, God was the one who had given the Ten Commandments, who had parted the Red Sea, who had shown himself to the people in a cloud or by fire. And we who live under the new covenant, God has revealed himself in the person of Jesus. That God came and took on flesh and walked this earth as a Jewish man named Jesus of Nazareth. And he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, and then rose again three days later. That we cannot just talk about God. We must talk about how God has revealed himself in Jesus. And as we talk about what Jesus has done, we are then led to follow him and mimic and imitate his lifestyle. And truth be told, when we follow Jesus as he has called us to live, it's going to lead us to be in tension with the world. But tension is hard, and so we adopt a watered-down theology like moralistic therapeutic deism. And we say, I just believe that God wants me to be happy, so it justifies the way I live my life, the way I use my money, the way I steward my time. And if I have a watered-down theology, I can get by just skating and enjoying life. But if we have a robust view of God centered on Jesus and we see his sacrificial death on our behalf and that he calls us to imitate his self-abasement, his humility, that he who was something became nothing, took on flesh, 
that we are called to walk in his footsteps, that is going to put us at tension with the world. But living in tension is hard. So we adopt the watered-down theology to deal with it. To pass on a living faith, we must pass on a robust view of Jesus that permeates into the way we live our lives. Second, those who had a robust or living faith were involved in a community who helped them live out God's story. In the youth room with the students, we've been going through uh, a series right now based on a sentence, and that sentence is this. It's wordy, uh, but it's, it's, it's impactful. It's, Jesus invaded man's realm, implanting the kingdom of God and initiating a community of new people to impact the world. So each week, we've, we've been going over different pieces of that. And one of the things we wanted to hone in on was community. Because we live in a day and age where it's all about the individual. I mean, that's even permeated how we talk about our faith. How is my walk with Jesus? What I got out of the church service? This is what I think God is teaching me. Even some of the songs we sing, that I'm coming back to the heart of worship. And and these things are good because God made us as individuals. But when we so emphasize the individual, it can come at a loss of the community. For the people of Israel, I don't think they had a concept of what it meant to be an individual apart from the people of God. They did not define themselves by I or me, but it was a we sense, that they were members of a community. And yet in our day and age, it's not common, uncommon to hear someone say, I'm a strong Christian, but I don't go to church. I don't know if you can do that. Because following Jesus means being involved in his community. Jesus did not come to form a random group of individuals. He came to form a fellowship of believers. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says that, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? We may be tempted to think that this means God's spirit dwells in me, which is true, that God's, the spirit comes and dwells within us. But in the Greek, the you is actually plural, so it should be translated y'all. Do you not know that y'all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in y'all? That God comes and dwells in our midst, that the spirit of God is present within the community of believers. He dwells with us. One of the studies done within this massive one on youth, they they realized that if, if a student does not have five to eight healthy relationships with adults in their church congregation who are not their parents, they're more likely to walk away from the faith altogether. That we, as a community, are called to raise our children. Yes, you fight for your family, but you also fight for this family. I grew up Presbyterian, and, and within the Presbyterian liturgy for, for dedicating a child, the, the minister will address the parents first and ask them a few questions, and then he will turn to the congregation, and he will say this. It's on the screen. There we go. Do we, as members of this extended family, Promise to guide and nurture this child by word and deed, with love and prayer, encouraging her or him to walk in the way of Christ and his peace, standing up for God's justice in the world. And the congregation responds, we do. That the congregation takes responsibility for every child, just not their own. I think as this community, we have to stop separating the youth 
off in the youth room. Yes, sometimes they have body odor, but bring them into the body of the congregation. We can put up with a few smells. When it comes to me hanging out with students, I just do what I like to do. I like to go rock climbing, and so I take students to go rock climbing with me. So one of the ways that we can get involved in our students' lives is what do you love to do? Can you do that with a student? So if there's a student who loves to golf, I'll say, sweet, go talk to Pastor Larry. He likes to golf. If there's a student who loves underwater basket weaving, I say, talk to Carlos. He's a professional. He knows what he's doing. What do you love to do? Let's begin to dream of ways to, to become an interconnected web of relationships so that it's not just about your own children, but that you've got hundreds of children. Yeah, it's kind of scary, but I mean, if we want to pass on a living faith, we've got to adopt all children as our own and take their life as our responsibility. Number three, those with a living faith had a calling to participate in God's story. I think this is illustrated very well in verse nine where Moses writes, write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And so to write the word of God on your gate was a reminder that as you went into the world, you had a calling to live as a member of the people of God, a member of the people of Israel, that it called you to live in a distinct way. I think parents, you play a huge role in the calling of your child. I was in Washington last weekend. My brother graduated from college and uh, it was really interesting because my parents kept making comments like, oh, your brother's always been like this, or Calvin, you've always been like that. And, and I realized that my parents know me better than myself. And, and their knowledge of me gives them a place to speak identity into me. See, identity is something that can be bestowed from one party to another. God looked at the people of Israel and says, you are my people. God looks at us and says, in Christ, you are my son. In Christ, you are my daughter. Now live according to that. And so parents, you have a calling to speak identity to your child. But it does not mean you get to dictate your child's life. I think a good illustration for parenting is like being in the passenger seat while your child is driving. For some of you, this is a frightening illustration, especially if your child is under five years old. (laughs) Even if he's 16, he's probably still a horrible driver. He's got to learn, though. But when you are in the passenger seat, you do not get to dictate where the car goes. The driver directs the car. But as a passenger, you can take observations of the terrain ahead. You can observe what's coming and lovingly encourage and correct and say, hey, this might be a good way to navigate this part. Take note of those things over here. I'm not saying you get to be a backseat driver. I'm seeing some husbands and wives going, this is you. No, as, as parents, you are called to lovingly guide and direct your children. So, parents, you don't get to make your child out to be what you want them to be. Rather, commit yourself to God and say, okay, God, what are you doing in my child's life? What are the ways you are already at work? What are the ways you are already forming them and transforming them? Take note of what God is doing. And then speak into them what God is doing. Write your child a letter and say, This is what I see God doing in your life. This is what I see him doing in your midst. Speak into their talents, their gifts, and abilities. Remind them of who they are. Because when you speak identity into them, you are putting a sign on their doorpost. 
and says, as you go into the world, this is who God has called you to be. Now live according to that calling. So how do we pass on a living faith? We, we pass on a calling that God has not just called us to sit by idly, but to participate in his story. Finally, those with a living faith had a hope that God had promised something. So for all of you who thought it was four C words, psych, hope. A hope. God is both, a moment, God is both present right now. He's also God of the future over all time and space. I imagine that when the Israelites were on about to enter into the promised land, there was an energy and electricity, excitement, that they had been wandering in the desert for 40 years, waiting to enter into the promised land, and they were about to enter in, that God's promise was about to come to fruition. That's the beautiful thing, is that God had made a promise to them that they would be in a land flowing with milk and honey, and he provided that promise. God speaks to us and says, one day I will reunite heaven and earth. I will dwell in your midst. And yes, he dwells with us now, but it's a foretaste of the glory to come. But my fear is that our culture does not have a proper understanding of hope. We are so defined by instant gratification that we want the fastest internet connection. If my YouTube video does not download now, I don't want to watch it. We want free one-day shipping. Thank you, Amazon Prime. And we want a meal in our hands without leaving our call. Thank car. Thank you, Chick-fil-A. And so we are defined by this instant gratification. I imagine that if Americans had been in the desert wandering for 40 years, they would have tried to find the most efficient way possible to do it. And yet inherent within the concept of hope is an understanding that we don't have what we want that there is something we are longing for and it is out of our reach. We want something that God has promised, but it's not here. But I think we've let the instant gratification define how we relate to God. So if God does not give me the joy of his presence right now, if he does not break this sin in my life, if he does not answer my prayer in the next three days, then I don't want him. And our students see that they say the same things, that if God doesn't give me what I want, when I want it, that I don't want a piece of this. We often cite Jeremiah 29, 11 as the fact that God has a plan right now. He says, I have plans to prosper you, not to harm you. And yet we forget to read the verse before. Jeremiah 29, 10, which reads, only when Babylon's 70 years are completed will I visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Are we a people so captured by God that we're willing to wait 40, even 70 years to see his promise fulfilled? Or do we have to have it now? Is my fervent belief that we as Christians are called to be prisoners of hope. Imagine what it would be like if we had a resolute hope in God. That it was just enough to hear that God had promised something. We could live by that. That as we wander through the desert times of this life, God may be leading us through 40 years of a desert to bring us into the promised land, but God has promised. And God is faithful and true to fulfill his promises. I wonder what it would look like if we were a community of hope, 
how that might impact the next generation. They might say, aren't you worried about the economy? How, how are you handling this? I say, yeah, sometimes I'm worried. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes I don't know what to do. We follow a God who has promised something, and that promise stands true whether I see it or not. And so I live by hope and by faith. So how do we pass on a living faith to the next generation? It's when we live with a robust creed centered on Jesus that leads us to live as he lived. It's when we become a community of people who take responsibility for every child that comes through these doors. It's when we begin to live out the calling to participate in God's story and we pass that calling on to the next generation. And finally, it is when we live with the hope that what God has said he will do and what he has begun, he will finish. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Thank you that, that you speak through your word, that you've given us an image to follow. God, I pray that you would enter into our hearts, the deepest part of ourselves, begin to permeate into every aspect of our lives. May we be captivated by you, captured by who you are and what you do. God, give us the, give us the energy and the faith to embrace the tension of living in the midst of other cultures of living in the midst of a world that does not follow you. God, form us to be a people who are prisoners of hope, who are captured and captivated by your word and what you've said. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.